This is Live Arts with Savannah. I am your host, Savannah Bailey McLean, and I'm very honored to have with us today Michelle Oka Donor. And she's an internationally known artist, and the breadth of her practice spans four years, and it includes sculpture, furniture, jewelry, public art, functional art. And I read about her in a magazine article, and I said, oh, this woman is phenomenal. And I just would like to get to know her, learn more about her. I was really impressed with her public art because I also curate public art. And I just wanted her to come into the studio and just share with us, you know, her career, what got her motivated, how she was able to dovetail into so many different layers and have a very interesting creative practice. It's not just an artistic practice, it's a creative practice. And what lessons she could share with all of us on how we can live life more fully and and more rich and creatively. So thank you, Michelle, for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here. So tell us, how did this um, begin for you as an artist? I was always an artist. I think art was always a calling. And as the universities began to take over the practice of educating artists, quote unquote, after World War II with the uh, GI Bill, it became a profession. You could train to be an art teacher. Okay. And then it became a business. All in my in my uh, half century of adult life, I've seen the change from something that was amorphous to okay. to something that has a lot of structure. That's really interesting to to hear how you say that. Um, how being an artist in America more than any other place, it finally became a business and. It morphed so that a person could have a career and earn their living from being an artist. But you think it's more from after World War II? Yes, definitely. I think that there were very few people who would identify as artists uh, in this country. And, for example, in 19, I think, 11, when mm-hmm. we had that Ashcan exhibition, yes. There were very few painters. That was a rarity. So that is uh, accelerated. Of course, it didn't increase during the Depression, and then we went to war. And after that, the, the many GIs took vocation tests. I happened to know several of them ended up as my teachers. Really? And even here in New York, the famous Jack Lenore Larson who invented uh, the fabric, I'd say, to take textiles and fabrics and make it into an extraordinary uh, business that merged craft and design and uh, entrepreneurship. I knew him. He had taken the vocational tests and ended up at Cranbrook in Michigan. And many of those people, painters, sculptors, designers, were on the GI Bill. 
I think, though, a little bit the WPA, uh, the WPA program during the Depression did help some artists, particularly in Harlem. Um, they would not have gotten an income maybe any other way. So a little bit of it did kind of precede World War II with the WPA uh, a program. Um, there's still the murals that are in Harlem Hospital to this day that have been restored. Um, there are several other murals. There's a beautiful one that's in the Harlem YMCA uh, that's by the pool, though they are really trying to restore it because apparently the dampness from the water has impacted that particular um, mural. But there are some examples, but you're right. I would say that it wasn't something that people would say often. I, I want to be an artist Correct. in the there, United States. Yes, there was some government support for the arts during the Depression. But if you look at the scale of it, mm-hmm. it certainly doesn't hold up to what we're experiencing today. Correct. And I would love to see those murals. I love the WPA period. Mm-hmm. When I came of age in uh, the late 50s, early 60s, I would see the Thomas Hart Benton murals and other WPA, lots of murals in Miami where I grew up. Okay. And my elementary school was a WPA project, by oh, the way. Wow. So, and I thought, this is amazing. This was so great. I wish something like this would happen. And then, of course, in the mid-1960s, the NEA was established, mm-hmm. and it did happen. Yes, and now, tragically, that program might be eliminated entirely. Well, you know, I feel we had the WPA, then we had the NEA, And then something new will be born. The human urge to create, to live around creative energy, is something that no political party can remove from our DNA. Mm -hmm. It is larger than politics. So if the NEA goes, I'll be very happy to see how it's reimagined into the new world because we we had WPA, we've had NEA. We don't know what it will be called, how it'll take shape and form, but I'm so positive it will exist. That's really a very encouraging, you know, attitude because truthfully, I felt that You know, there were some flaws with the NEA and NEH. I didn't want to see the programs um, eliminated for political reasons, but I thought maybe this could be an opportunity to make them uh, more inclusive. And I'm saying that because storytelling has become real important. And how do we go about telling stories today? And how do we encourage uh, the integration of different layers of stories and different types of stories. So I'm very encouraged by what you're saying because maybe that is going to be the new answer. We're going to morph and have more digital technology uh, influence virtual reality, augmented reality, digital storytelling. It might be kind of cool. It's going to be wonderful and that will make libraries home again because 
you can sit there and instead of reading your book, there'll be storytelling there. There'll mm-hmm. be poetry. There'll be all of our language and thinking process was was oral through the Greeks, you know, Homer. And it wasn't really until the printing press mm-hmm. that, and that's so close to us in terms of human history. Yes. Our oral tradition is primary. So it's returning and it never went away. That's okay. the and I was raised on stories because my grandfather was raised in what we called the old country mm-hmm. in an agrarian place. He was part of the Russian woods. Ah. When he came to this country he knew how to whistle like every bird and make all the animal noises. And when he told us stories, when he came over, he was I was frightened. I was frightened at the wolf. <laughs> so when you heard Peter and the wolf, then uh, you really heard Peter and the wolf. I was afraid. I seriously, I was. I you know re- I remember mm-hmm. wanting to get under the dining room table in a way from this old man telling these stories with such verve. So it's, it's again, you're correct about wishing and thinking, and in a sense, you're conjuring up the next, I'm not going to say the next NEA. I'm going to say the next permutation of mm-hmm. what it is to live a creative life in this country in the 21st century. All right, we're going to take a little break and then we're going to talk about your individual practice. And so, Michelle, why don't you talk to us about your practice? So I know you've always felt that you were an artist. And so tell us... Where did you begin? Did you begin with sculpture? Did you begin with jewelry, design? Where did you start? I always liked to make things that I needed, and I never saw the store as the answer to my desires. And I never went to Pearl Paint even when I moved to Soho. I liked found objects. I like paper that was already marked. So the world for me was a place to forage, whether it was out in the woods, on the beach, or in an urban place like New York City. Mm -hmm. And so I created my own environment, much like our great ancestors and I moved to New York when I understood there was live-work situation available like a large loft, and I saw it as my cave. So I had made fireplace tools before. I had made a table. I had made works on paper. So the vocabulary of what I made, what I made it with, how I made it, just kept expanding from a centeredness that all all art, quote-unquote, came from the making of things that either one projected and couldn't find or one needed. Okay. So what did you need? Well, first of all, I was fascinated when I discovered that the Japanese had no word for art. 
So their mm. teacups were beautiful. Everything they used had to stand up and be counted. They didn't have much excess. And the Scandinavians, too, respected every piece of wood, all materials. So we didn't have that tradition in this country growing up. But my parents both came from a more European tradition, and daily life was very ceremonial. Okay. So everything that was used, whether it was um, wasn't didn't have to do with cost or expense. Even a spoon, a beautiful spoon, was chosen because it had a nice handle or a nice shape and was respected. So I, I have always lived like that. And I've made books. I've made um, floors. There's a wonderful book by a man named William Letheby, who was the father of uh, the arts and crafts movement and influenced John Ruskin, the great philosopher, during the uh, Industrial Revolution when manufacturing took over handmade goods. And he wrote a book called Architectural Mysticism and Myth. And the chapters were ceilings like the sky and pavements like the sea and the living tree. So that's really, it was, it was an inspiration. It, but more than that, it pulled together all that I had been dreaming and thinking about. That said, when I studied art history, which was Islamic art and medieval art, and saw, again, you go into a Gothic cathedral, the floor was beautiful, the walls were painted, the seats were carved from wood, the stained glass was fabulous, the paintings were embedded, the frames were gilded. It was the whole thing was a work of art. Mm. And I think that has been my overriding uh, goal and philosophy. Why limit it to an object on a pedestal or something framed on a wall? How convenient of our culture, which is so based on uh, uh, commercial commercialism yeah. and to, competition yeah to commodify it in such a way so i have joyfully ignored the commodification and the categorization of what i do and start to please my own sensibility and it expanded from there for example, jewelry. Mm -hmm. I never set out to make jewelry. I needed a bracelet. <laughs> and I just took a piece of bronze one day. And Well, who needs a bracelet? I wanted the bracelet. <laughs> and then I needed an evening bag, and I saw this gorgeous piece of termite-eaten wood, and my thought process went, you know, why don't I just make a mold of this and have it cast light and make a hinge, and it'll be a box, and then I don't have to go shopping. So mm. it's expanded that way. There was no big design. There is now an understanding that it has full circle. It's pretty complete in terms of what one would need in a lifetime. But mm -hmm. 
I've done forks. I've designed plates. I think there's not a square inch of the uh, of the necessity of life that I haven't approached in some way, including sinks. Okay. <laughs> so tell me, <clears throat> what advice would you give to, you know, emerging artists or those who are thinking about making art um, as a lifetime career, how they should start to develop their perspective and how to go about um, nurturing their practice? I think that our lives are the work of art. And that goes back also to the cave, to shamanism. What the artist was and still is, is the embodier of collective hopes and dreams, Mm. to make those marks somehow. So you're not necessarily the caveman going and finding the deposit of iron and hoping by drawing the the, the stag on the wall that the hunt will be successful. Mm-hmm. You're an urban warrior. Mm-hmm. And so you reinvent yourself today with the iPhone, with the camera, with so many things that become integrated into your life, your head of hair, your what you put around your neck, your amulet. All of this is so timeless, so accessible to all of us. It, curating yourself in your life is your identity, and that's where to begin. Ah, I like that very much because I, I kind of felt that that was um, a need, you know, to think about what you want to do, how you want to go about doing it, and not letting others kind of rush you and push you in a direction you may not want to go or you may not be ready to go uh, towards. And um, pausing more often, being reflective more often. I just feel that sometimes we don't do it. When I was a kid, I loved to read. I was a ferocious reader and it allowed me to enter different worlds it allowed me to meet different people and i feel that nowadays we just rush all these kids into you know just worrying about a test and not worrying about you know life and the people that you're going to meet i just shared how asia week is starting and yesterday i went on a journey to china japan Vietnam, Tibet, Bhutan, Indonesia, all in one day to see artwork that was beyond beautiful. It was magnificent. It was glorious. And no classroom could ever begin to tell you the stories and the history and the people and the techniques that was being shared with us. And all the dealers were so welcoming and wanting to share because it was like their babies. It wasn't, oh, this is just for trade, but they felt so connected to everything that was there. So that's what I'm hearing from you. It's true. Well, that's what what's called the thou voice and what an artist establishes for themselves, which no one can give them, no one teaches them, is what I call an I-thou dialogue. Mm. Well, 
this was a treat to to hear you to finally meet you because I I just felt that you know there was a kindred spirit there and to see you just move between different worlds so easily the the fashion to the public art but tell me before we go a little bit about your public art I liked a lot of the designs that you developed was it just for open spaces or were they also for gardens or private uh, residences as well everything and um I have a beautiful piece. I love this piece that's right here in New York City at Herald Square under Macy's called Radiant Sight. It's 11,000 gold luster tiles. Wow. And if you're taking the R, the N, or the, I think the Q, mm-hmm. you can see it. It it was uh, to make a hearth in the center of the city. I felt I created an inversion where you descend into light instead of dark, Mm -hmm. and that was uh, installed by 1990. So I love these projects that people experience. I hear people take selfies there in Miami Airport. It's called a walk on the beach, Mm -hmm. which I defined as a journey within a journey. So the public art projects linked me back to my early love of the WPA, mm-hmm. but also to engage as the shaman with millions of people to share what I've been handed, not what I've developed. But okay. this is a long thread of evolution, conscious evolution about why we're here, what we're doing here, and you know the 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 meaning the purpose there is a meaning and there okay. is a purpose okay. and i think when you embrace that notion it grounds you and uh, once you have two feet on the ground you really do begin to fly thank you so very much michelle and so we're going to end this right now but it was a lovely chat thank you <laughs> 